Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who was the 13th overall pick of the Minnesota North Stars in the 1984 NHL Draft. Instead of turning pro immediately, he opted to play collegiately for Boston University. After his junior year, he tried out for the 1988 U.S. Olympic team. However, during his tryout, he was diagnosed with hemophilia B, also known as Christmas disease. He would, however, stay in the game as a coach, which included being named the 11th head coach of his alma mater, Boston University, replacing the legendary Jack Parker, where he compiled an impressive 105-69-21 and record, which included a national championship as well as a conference championships. He left BU to become the head coach of the New York Rangers. During their rebuild in three seasons, he compiled a winning record despite having the youngest team in the NHL. It is a pleasure to warmer the, welcome the former head coach, although... I still would prefer to say the current head coach of the New York Rangers, <laughs> David Quinn. Welcome, Coach. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing good. And, and before we get to the Rangers stuff, which I told you the other day, it's been four months and I still can't even comprehend it, can't wrap my head around it. But let's talk about the road that led to you being a head coach. Your leadership skills were honed at an early age. You're the captain of the football team, the baseball team, as well as the hockey team at the Kent School. You're even in charge of campus tours, which actually included giving Brian Leach a tour of Kent, which he said (laughs) he was very comfortable in his own skin, very confident, yet with an easygoing nature. And he said when you're in high school, and he says he thinks Quinny was a senior at that point, it was a little intimidating but reassuring that everything he was saying, he was telling the truth. So where does the foundation for your leadership skills come from? Well, I think when you grow up with a father as a cop and a mother as a school bus driver, there's no BS in your life, that's for sure. And uh, nothing was ever handed to us, yet they certainly provide an incredible amount of love and support and direction for us. And, you know, you really don't appreciate your parents until you get older in life. And, uh, you know, the lessons they taught myself and my brother and sister were invaluable and you know, I'm just very, very fortunate to have parents like that. So aside from your leadership skills, you're obviously a very skilled player. Lou Nanny, the Minnesota North Star GM, after he drafted you, said he looks a lot like New York Islanders defenseman Dennis Potvin. He, the way he handles himself on the ice, that's pretty high praise. This was also a time before the USA college hockey program was a big option back then. What went into your choice to play college instead of going pro right away? Well, I, I really felt that I wasn't ready to play in the National Hockey League. And, you know, one of the things that I thought, as opposed to signing a contract and playing in the minors, I just thought college hockey was the best route for me to go. And, you know, there was a lot to life uh, for my end of it. I thought that, you know, not only was I going to be able to grow from a physical standpoint and a hockey standpoint, but, you know, playing pro hockey, it's a lot more than just having the talent to do it. There's a lot of obstacles and there's a lot of things you need to do away from the rink that will allow you to have success. I can't tell you how many players I've coached that had NHL talent that never made it for a variety of reasons. And I just thought that the college route for me was going to continue to allow me to grow on and off the ice. And, you know, what I wanted to do was, you know, when I left BU, ready to go play in the National Hockey League, both on and off the ice. And, uh, you know, looking back, thank God I did that because obviously, uh, 
you know, having hockey taken away from me at the age of 20, uh, certainly uh, a blessing in disguise that I did choose to go that route. Yeah, it's an interesting side note as well, is that you end up getting to coach Lou Nanny's grandson, Vinny Letary, here yeah. with the New York Rangers. Um, <laughs> yeah. You also get to play for the legendary coach, Jack Parker. What was the biggest lesson you learned from him, both you know, life-wise and coaching-wise? Yeah, I mean, Jack was such an intense coach, and he just the passion that he coached with, and he just wanted you to be the best player you could possibly be. And, you know, it wasn't about being better than the guy next to you or the guy across from you. It was about being the best player you could possibly be. And that's something that I really took with me throughout uh, my coaching career because, uh, you know, we're all born with a different amount of talent. And just because you happen to have more skill or talent than someone next to you or across from you doesn't mean that that's just that's what you should live off of or that's what you should strive to be your goal should be to be the best player you could possibly be and it was something that jack instilled at all of us when we were playing for him at bu so we mentioned that tryout for the 1980 olympic hockey team and the diagnosis that changed your life what do you remember about that day and when you were told about it and how it impacted your life yeah, well, I didn't really know much about hemophilia, and when they told me that, uh, you know, that I had it, and that unfortunately my career was going to have to end, uh, I didn't really believe it. It was just such a shock because, you know, I knew I was having bruising issues, and I was injured more than uh, than most people in our sport. But I just thought it was just bad luck, you know. And you know, when they tell you that you're a hemophiliac and that you could cost yourself your life. Uh, it certainly puts things in perspective. So, um, you know, that being said, it was a very difficult time and very difficult news to hear. Your first round pick, you're going to play on the 88 Olympic team. You envision yourself having a 10 to 15 year NHL career. And then at the age of 20, you have it taken away from you. It's uh, to call it life changing would be an understatement. But uh, I was very fortunate to have people that cared about me a lot and uh, looked out for me. And, uh, my coaches, Ben Smith and Jack Parker, and were certainly two of those people that helped me through a difficult time. And that really was one of the main reasons why I got into coaching. I thought to myself, well, you know, I can't really put into words the impact that my coaches have had in my life. Maybe someday I can have that type of impact on the players I coach. And that was really the driving force of me getting into coaching. So, so let's get to, to your Ranger career here. Um, you name the head coach and you're, you're going to be the biggest part of the rebuild and the youth movement. When you're hired, are there discussions within the organization what they wanted to see with each you know season, and was there a timetable for the rebuild? Um, yeah, you have those discussions on you know what what our goals were, and your goals are always to make the playoffs. And I know, you know, before I took the job, that they had sent the letter out talking about a rebuild, and you know that's easy to say and write, and you know you tell you're going through the off season and you put your team together and. You know, you talk about the rebuild, and we know it might be challenging to to make the playoffs. But once the games start, nobody thinks about that or cares about that. It's all about winning and losing. It's a National Hockey League, and you know that was certainly uh, something that we're all aware of. But you know, we also knew what we were hired to do and what we were trying to do, and we were trying to build a foundation and you know build a situation where we can compete the Stanley Cups year in and year out. And um, you know, there really was, uh, was really, there was a lot of clarity on what we we're trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, we we're fortunate that, uh, our last two years there, that we were in the hunt for playoff positions. I really believe we were going to make the playoffs two years ago when we, when we got, uh, the season got halted in Colorado on March 11th. And then this year obviously was, uh, you know, a year we were still in the hunt late in the season, but 
you know, injuries certainly didn't help our cause. We just didn't have the level of depth I thought that we needed to, to, to sustain or to overcome some of the injuries we had and some of the challenges we had. But, you know, we were all on the same page in what we were trying to accomplish. It's interesting because the, the first season you come in and obviously you're trying to implement, you know, your culture and what you want to see. The second season, you had to deal with such a wide range of things. And, and first and foremost is a three-goalie situation, which included taking away time from, you know, Henrik Lundqvist, one of the biggest Ranger legends of all time. And not only that, he's also one of the fiercest competitors. And then, of course, the pause as well. How difficult was it to navigate, you know, that goalie system with Hank as well? Well, it was not easy, but what I will tell you and anyone listening is that uh, to this day, uh, I can't thank Hank enough for the way he handled a very, very difficult situation. I mean, you know, I had a quick conversation when we landed uh, uh, in Westchester after our season ended, and uh, I said to him, I said, I can't thank you enough for how you handled a very difficult situation with the class and professionalism you did, and I certainly wish I had was able to coach you in a different stage of your career. And uh, But you know, at the end of the day, you know, we were playing the best players we felt that gave us a chance to win day in and day out. And ultimately, that's our job as coaches. And that's what we're doing. You know, you alluded to this. You enter the month of May at 24 and 21 and four. You go 13, seven and one. And then the season is stopped due to COVID. What impact do you think the pause had that wiped out the last you know, 12 mm-hmm. games of the season on the progression of where you wanted to be? Uh, I think it really affected us in a lot of ways, but that being said, I think it affected a lot of teams. We certainly felt like we had that it factor going, uh, that, you know, in February and March of that year, even actually, I think it started in January. We really kind of started turning the corner and playing a, a well-balanced brand of hockey. I thought we were obviously very dynamic and threatening offensively, but I thought we were responsible defensively. And if you look at the stats after January 7th that year, uh, we were one of the best teams in the National Hockey League, offensively and defensively, and our record certainly uh, reflected that. And, you know, I thought that the you know once the pandemic hit and the season stopped, it certainly affected uh, the bubble. And then you know, season starts. You know, when it did, and Mika gets COVID, and you know, it just there was a lot of things going on. And in one one year, boy, so many things changed yeah. uh, for us for so many reasons, and. But that being said, it's pro sports. You got to manage it. And you got to fight through it. And you got to make it work. And uh, you know that's just that's life in the National Hockey League. Yeah, and then on top of that, the goalie who went, you know, started his rookie career at ten and two is unable to go in the first two games of the playoffs as well, which you never ever, you to your credit, never used any of these things as an excuse. The silver lining in that season is that you end up winning the draft lottery, get the number one pick, Alexi Lafreniere, to go with the prior year's number two pick in Capo Caco. You went to great lengths over and over again for media fans alike on those Zooms not to place unrealistic expectations on those two. And I totally agreed with the way you manage them and, and ease them into the process of becoming an NHL player. Could you explain to some of those people out there who would might be one of those that would tweet endlessly how both should have been getting top-line minutes, both should have been on the power play, why that's really not the way to go at an early stage of, of a player's career? Well, you know... It's first of all, if they're not good enough at that particular time, it doesn't do them any good or our team any good to put them in those situations. Our job is to put them in situations where they're going to have success. 
and they want that. We want them to be in those situations, but you know, it's very difficult for an 18 year old kid to step into the national hockey league and be put in those situations. The one thing that was different about getting Alexi and Capo uh, with the first and second pick uh, in those two years is we had good teams. They weren't getting drafted by teams that went, you know, 20 and, and 62. I mean, we had some pretty good players on our team. And usually when you get the first pick or the second pick overall, you know, you're not very good. And usually those players are able to be plugged in in top six roles or on the top power play unit because of the situation they step into. Usually the team that gets the first pick overall or the second pick of overall isn't very good. And that certainly wasn't the case with us. So, uh, and the other thing is you got a locker room to answer to. I mean, you can't just hand these 18 and 19 year old kids uh, opportunity uh, if they haven't earned it and, or if they're not good enough. And, you know, that's, you know, I understand a fan's frustration with that. Uh, we all get caught up in it. We're in a, you know, instant, you know, gratification society these days and patience is few and far between in all walks of life. But that was just the reality of the situation. We're in with both those players and they're going to be unbelievable players. They're going to be great players in the National Hockey League and the Rangers are very fortunate to have them. Yeah, I know that during one of the Zooms this year, when I cited the youth on the teams that you coached here with the Rangers, as well as the fact that your BU teams were also always some of the youngest in college hockey, you joked that maybe one day you'd get the opportunity to coach a veteran <laughs> team. You would, you would praise the Islanders and you would uh, praise the Bruins numerous times because of the, you know, their ability that guys have played five, six, seven, eight years together. Are coaches Bruce Cassidy and Barry Trotz able to do things coaching-wise because of the experience that you were not able to do here with the Rangers those first three years? 100%. And, you know, they're both wonderful, great coaches, but I would actually talk about that with some of our veteran players about our situation, how different it is to, you know, those two teams and teams like that, Washington and and teams like that. It's just it's just a different situation. And we did the rosters were built differently. Uh, than those teams. Um, and But we knew that going into each season over the last three years. It was just, you know, the Rangers had a great seven, eight, nine-year run competing for Stanley Cups in the hunt year in and year out. Won a ton of playoff series for a five, six-year stretch. I think more than any team in the Eastern Conference. And it was just time. And, you know, to go through a rebuild and not really hit rock bottom to be, you know, over the last three years, you know, my first year, you know, we were under 500 and, you know, especially after the trade deadline where we we kind of suffered a little bit from winning losing standpoint, but, you know, to be in a rebuild and have the record we have and be as competitive as we were, I think speaks volumes to the job that, you know, Jeff Gorton did uh, and Chris Drury and Glenn Sather and John Davidson during that time. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's not easy to do and to be able to do what we did as an organization through a rebuild was, uh, I think, as you talk to people in the league, and they thought uh, it was a way to go if you were in the situation the Rangers were in. Which brings me to my next question. And, and like I said before, you never made excuses for three years. And, and constantly your mantra was, you know, every team has to deal with this. You have to fight through adversity. But you look at what that team had to deal with, all right? You had the Tony D'Angelo situation early on. You had Mika, who was not Mika because he was recovering from COVID. You had the youngest team in hockey. You had Jack Johnson, who was brought in for leadership on the blue line, gets lost to injury. Your best player missed time due to a political hit piece, which never happened in the history of the NHL besides <laughs> that. Uh, on top of that, you and your staff you know, get COVID. Player meetings are done via Zoom. No fans in the building. And add that to the division that you played in 
and yet you're in the mix to the last week of the season. Given what you accomplished with all those obstacles, I have to think that when they gave you the news that you were being let go, it had to feel like you were blindsided and I don't know how you comprehend that because I've spoken to people and, and put it in different contexts of different professions that if someone did all this and production not only didn't fall but went up, you know, how do you let someone go? So what was your initial reaction when you're told that you're not coming back? Well, listen, when I when um, JD and Jeff got let go, you know, I knew anything was possible and when I got into this level, I knew anything was possible. You know, I said to said to many people that you know i could have stayed at bu and unless something crazy had happened probably uh coached there for a long long time not get fired but you know it was a national hockey league it was a chance to coach the new york rangers in a unique situation and uh it just at this point in my life it was the right move for me but you know once jd and jeff got let go i certainly knew that anything was possible and you know it just uh it's pro sports and you know whether i agreed with it or not it, uh, like I said, it's, it's life in the National Hockey League. I, I was joking with uh, people, actually a couple of NHL coaches, you know, once you finish your second year in the National Hockey League, you're on the clock. <laughs> I mean, anything, can, anything can happen. Uh, and, and that's just the reality of it. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of really good coaches have lost jobs, whether they agree with it or not, um, is irrelevant. And uh, I'm just looking forward to hopefully getting another opportunity because uh, I really think I've learned an awful lot, uh, especially this past year. I really believe it was probably the biggest learning year I had as a coach in the National Hockey League. And I'm certainly hoping I get another opportunity and look forward to another opportunity. Coach, this is A.J. Carter. For years, Jim Dolan left the Rangers alone. And he, he tinkered with the Knicks and got justifiably criticized for that. Before you were let go, did you see any difference with him taking increased interest in the Rangers, and how did that affect what you did and affect your opinion of the franchise? No, I didn't see any difference. I mean, Jim treated me incredibly well. We had a great relationship. Uh, I always enjoyed talking. He'd always come down before games, and it wasn't to talk about anything specific. He wasn't telling me how to coach. He was just being very supportive and I'm not just saying that. I mean, he really was a, a guy that I enjoyed working for and working with. And, you know, Ranger fans are lucky to have him as an owner because he does nothing but put you in a position to have success. So all they want to do is win there in New York. And um, like I said, it's just part of life in the National Hockey League. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to coach for the Rangers for three years and work, work for, for Jim Dolan. And, you know, I, he just he never changed. He just was always very supportive of me. And, uh I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed working for him. So in the case of Tony D'Angelo, you work so hard to make him a complete player. Opening night, he takes the unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. You bench him in game two. Gort said that he felt that Tony never seemed to let that go. He actually warned him if there were other incidents, he would have been waived. But was there ever a scenario where the altercation between him and Georgie could have been kept in the room let him play a few games and then trade him? Or was that just never an option? Well, I just think the way things had evolved, I think it just got to the point that uh, after that incident, it just wasn't going to work. And I know people may find this hard to believe, but I really, really like Tony D'Angelo. He's a heck of a hockey player. And uh, matter of fact, Tony was one of the first people to reach out to me after uh, I got let go, believe it or not. And Tony and I had some communication after uh, – uh, his season ended with us and you know 
it just uh, it just wasn't going to work, and for a variety of reasons. And I think Tony knew that as well. And uh, you know, it's just it's unfortunate. But again, that's uh, people learn at different stages in their lives. And I think Tony's learned an awful lot. And I think when he gets his next chance, he'll be a better player for it. So full disclosure here, as a sports talk radio host, I can still be more of a fan than the beat guys like like Vince McCargliano, Larry, Colin Stevenson, and Carpy. But I'm also smart enough to know that every NHL coach has more hockey knowledge in their pinkies than all of the writers, all of Twitter combined. <laughs> but that being said, you know, as a fan, you always have like players that you think are going to be something. And over the years for me, it's included Rico Fada, Rafael Diaz, P.A. Parento. This year's version, and I ask you about him numerous times, is Julian Godier. Um, what prevented him from becoming the player that everyone thought he could be and the fact that he's, you know, not protected and Kevin Rooney is protected. What do you think the organization, um, you know, wanted out of him that he didn't bring? Well, you look at Julian and you, you watch him, you come watch warmups. You think, you know, this guy's going to be the best player on the ice during the course of the game. And he certainly showed flashes of that, his ability during the course of his, you know, year plus with us. And, you know, sometimes when you've been a scorer your whole life like Julian has, uh, you know, pro hockey, you know, makes you realize there's an awful lot more to it because it's very difficult to score at the National Hockey League level. And, you know, I think Julian was going in the right direction, uh, becoming the player that the Rangers wanted him to be. Uh, but sometimes it takes two or three organizations where all of a sudden it all clicks. And I think there might be some resistance from, from players when you're asking them to do things they've never had to do before. And I think that's part of Julian's situation where I think he's learning uh, some of the things he's going to have to do day in and day out to be the player he's capable of being. So, um, again, you look at, you know, there have been a lot of players in the league that by the time they get to the third or fourth organization, it finally clicks and they become really good players. And that might be the case with Julian. Yeah, I, I hope somehow he doesn't go back to the guy who originally drafted him, but we'll, we'll see Wednesday. But conversely, I think every fan also has a guy that they don't get what the coach sees in him. And for me, and maybe this organization also felt that now, uh, that was Brett Howden, who was traded yesterday. I get all the things he does defensively and, and how you know, um, responsible he is on the ice, but what was it about his game that you valued so much? And is also part of that decision go into what as the organization might see this player developing into down the road? Yeah, that was definitely one where you know what he could be was part of the reason why he played you know, the way he did. And he was a reliable penalty killer um, was certainly one of the other reasons. And, you know, uh, we just thought there was upside there and, you know, we stuck with him and continue to give him opportunity. And uh, obviously from a statistic standpoint, he didn't have the year that uh, he certainly wanted to have, but we thought he'd have, but um, you know, I just thought there was a guy that could, you know, was smart, rely, you know, reliable and had a chance to continue and improve playing, uh, you know, playing in the situations he were in. I'll, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Looking back, you know, maybe it might have been better for him if he played a full season in the minor leagues because what can happen to a player when they're trying to develop in the National Hockey League is they can lose confidence in a hurry. And, you know, there's nothing like having success. And maybe, you know, Brett playing a year in the National in the American Hockey League and being more productive offensively would have continued to keep him feeling good about himself and uh, having playing with more confidence because I think that was something that he was always fighting is playing with a level of confidence that he needed to play with to be successful night in and night out. But, 
you know, I just think that was a situation we're in, as we talk about. You know, we were in a rebuild, and young players were going to get a chance to play. Probably also doesn't help organizationally wise that he's traded for Ryan McDonough, and you know, so the expectations are there, you know, for that player as well. One of the things that came out in the press uh, that they cited as one of the reasons for your dismissal that there was a disconnect with you and the star players, which is totally puzzling to me because I look at the roster and I have to assume if you're talking about star players for the Rangers, it would be Mika, Bread, and maybe Kreider. The first two achieved their statistical best under you, and Kreider has been cried since you've got. There's been no dip in his game. Where do you think that narrative came from? Uh, that's a good question. I really don't know. And, you know, is every relationship perfect? No, every relationship has its ups and downs. And, you know, my relationship with all of our players has peaks and valleys, just like everybody in there, every relationship we all have with people, you have peaks and valleys. And, but for the most part, as you alluded to, I mean, you know, I hear that secondhand from people and I, I scratch my head because you look at Panarin being a Hart Trophy finalist and have his, his best statistical years under us. Mika having his best years under us statistically. Uh, Pavel Buchnevich having his best years under us statistically. Ryan Strom having his best years under us statistically. <laughs> Adam Fox winning a Norris Trophy. Uh, you, you know, you so to mention uh, Keandre making the old rookie team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, Ryan Lingren turning into an everyday yeah. NHL, you know, so it's just, I don't understand where it comes from, but you know, it's, uh, somebody says something, boy, you know, Mika's mad at Quinny or, you know, Brett's pissed at Quinny cause he didn't put this guy on his line and, you know, maybe people run with it. I don't know. I, I really don't know. And, uh, but like I said, I, I, you know, I think the, the, the statistics speak for themselves. It's interesting. For me, I, I think the rebuild it was going as well as anyone could have imagined. I thought you were the right coach. I trusted J.D. and Jeff to make the right moves as far as depth pieces to move and which to keep. I worry now that three years of growth can be undone with one or two wrong moves here. How far away do you think you guys were, as well as the staff, from being where you wanted to get? And how frustrating it is it to be looking at it from the outside and and maybe cringing when one or two moves might get made. Yeah, I mean, I think we all thought that this was the year we were going to be able to make the next step, you know, with the dead dead cap money that we were dealing with uh, over the last year, and you know, having that open up uh, was going to allow the Rangers to to make some moves to create the depth we all knew we needed and add the certain pieces we needed to finish the puzzle because. Uh, you know, we knew, you know, everything that people say about us externally, we knew internally what we needed to do to improve our situation. So, you know, um, that, you know, Chris will do a great job with that. He'll certainly, um, you know, he's a qualified guy and he'll make the right moves. And, you know, as far as me being frustrated, I got over that probably a month and a half ago. You got to move on quickly as a fired NHL coach and, uh, uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta be ready for your next challenge. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on. I, you know, I always wonder what it'd be like to get fired. And once I took this job, I knew it was gonna happen. <laughs> and I wonder, I wondered how I was gonna feel and how I was gonna handle it. And uh, you know, it's not fun, that's for sure. But uh, you know, sports teach you to, to focus on what's coming next and, and move past what's happened in the past. You can be focused on making, making yourself a better coach and being ready for your next opportunity. 
But it's interesting because you just alluded to something that you knew what pieces you needed, you knew what you needed to add to get there. So, so much has been made of the Wilson incident, incident. And, and the fact that, you know, the team wasn't tough enough and, and that was on you. But, you know, if J.D. and Jeff knew that this was something they needed to add, how is that on you? Um, and even for them, I mean, they, they had steps in place. They were building depth. You know, I, I just don't understand why certain things are pointed to as the reason for blowing this all up the way they did. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I, I, you know, I might be the wrong person to ask that question. We all knew we needed to get tougher and, and create more depth, but, you know, we weren't going to give up first-round picks for them this coming year. I mean, you know, there had to be a level of patience and and keeping things in perspective. And, uh, you know, we knew that. You know, the other thing that people, may, you know, losing Truba, you know, we played that uh, game in the island uh, after we played them back-to-back and we took three out of four points from them, played really well, and then we were, you know, went, went in there to play him again. And Truba got hurt the second or third shift, and we lost him for the season. And, you know, then we didn't have Kreider the next game. It just, you know, to not have Truba and Kreider for those last few games against the Islanders, uh, when, you know, in our three years, we had some, we had, we had success against, you know, we had a winning record against the Islanders up to that, that point. And I know this year it didn't finish the way we wanted to against them, but, um, you know, we just weren't built to lose two guys that with the NHL experience that those guys have hard NHL players and be able to beat the Islanders. That's just reality of it. And, uh, that was something that we knew that we had to improve on going into this coming season. So, you know, like I said, I can't answer why it happened, but we certainly identified, uh, what we needed to, to do to improve our situation, improve our team. And, you know, they certainly talked long and hard about making some of this moves at the trade deadline, but, you know, you, you also got to be smart about your future, too, where we were as an organization. So what would you say is the one takeaway lesson that you have from this experience as you go into your next job? Aside from learning how to be fired as an NHL head yeah. coach. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a it's just, you know, for me, it's the relationships uh, at this level are a little bit different. Uh, than they are in college. Um, and, you know, that's something I'll be a little bit more aware of in my next next situation. I thought we did a really good job of it uh, for the most part, but you're always looking to improve. And, you know, that's something that in my head that I'll probably approach things a little bit differently uh, than I did here in New York, but not too drastically. And, you know, maybe some tweaks uh, from game time, game day management, and some of the things uh, within games that, uh, looking back, uh, that I, I would probably do a little bit differently, but you know, those are things uh, that I had in my head noted uh, that I was going to do before I got let go. Now, one of the things in speaking to the guys in the locker room when the Rangers made their Stanley Cup run under Elaine Vigneault, um, the core guys, you know, Henrik, you know, Stahl, and Girardi, was how much credit they gave to Tom Rennie for you know, breaking them into the NHL and, and letting them know what it took to be a professional and how to hold themselves up as a professional. You look over these three years, the guys that you have broken into this league, when all is said and done, how proud are you of that group of guys that you actually were their first head coach and, and laid the foundation for, you know, just for instance, Fox's, you know, Norris Trophy win? Yeah, I mean... You know, I'm a guy that's always – it's all about the players. And, you know, Foxy and I have had some great text exchanges since he won the Norris. And he's been very kind and complimentary to our staff. But, 
you know, it certainly makes you feel good and you're certainly proud to watch these young players evolve and become great NHL players. And, you know, when the, when the dust settles and these guys get to the level that they're capable of getting to you, you know, you hope you you played some small part in it. Really. That's all you want to do is you want to put them in the best position to be the best player they can possibly be. And you're hoping that uh, you help them get there because that's ultimately your, your goal and your responsibility as a coach. Coach, I want to thank you so much for your time tonight, but more importantly, Thanks so much for putting up with me and my long-winded questions on Zoom for the last year and a half. Um, I, I truly uh, look forward to seeing you somewhere again and, and asking you questions again as a head coach somewhere in the NHL real soon. I, I really appreciated the the thought process, uh, you know, that you gave to every question that anyone asked of you, and especially, you know, for me, I really respected you as a coach, and I will definitely miss you here in New York. Well, I appreciate it, Mark. Always enjoyed dealing with you, so uh, I appreciate those kind words and always good talking to you. All right, hopefully speak to you real soon and have, have a great summer. All right, you too. Take care, guys. You got it, the man I addressed as coach for three years, the former New York Rangers head coach, David Quinn.